Welcome to Iro Live with host Bob Bay. So we started talking last week about step one. Now, you guys, the steps in and of themselves are nothing, right? In and of themselves, they're just a self-help tool. But they're broken down and the, and the, and the principles that, lie behind, that lay behind them are important to life and how we live life, why things work the way they do. And so it's no accident that, you know, when, when the people, actually the, when the 12 steps came out of uh, a group called the Oxford groups and they had these principles that, that they walked in and that it goes all the way back to John Wesley and uh, the Methodist and uh, uh, and so it was just a way for people who were really struggling with church and who had issues with church. It was a way for them, another path for them to find a relationship with God. And that was the success in behind it because God's behind that. But so in the, if you look at the steps and you think about if you've been around church for a while and you think about people uh, being I'll quote unquote led to Christ. The first step in in this realization in uh, and I'll say in getting saved is a realization that there's something within us that is separated from God. And in and of ourselves we ha- we do not have the ability to be good enough to be perfect, to live a sinless life. We are incapable of that, right? And so that's the, the first part of understanding that we are what in the church we would say we are sinners and there's nothing we can do about that. We are cursed with the, through the Adamic law. We are sinners and there's nothing we can do. Then it comes to a point where after, after people realize that, then you begin to talk about how there was a Savior, that God had a plan to save us from that. And you lay out the plan of salvation that God had. Now, if you look at the steps, the first step being, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, and that our lives have become unmanageable. Right? We begin to see our need for a Savior. We need to be saved from ourselves. The second step would be, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. In church talk, we'll say that we come to believe that there is a Savior. And He can save us from ourselves. And then the third step being, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And then AA, they would say, as we understood him. Because they understood that we all come to God in the beginning with a misconception of who God really is. And so you, you can see in that, in those steps, the plan of salvation. It just doesn't have the official words plugged into it. But that's the success of the 12 steps. That's why all of the psychology, psychiatry, 
all of the studies, the advances they've been, that have been made in biology, in the genetics fields, all of this, these advancements, they have ideas and they think, well, we believe that maybe this is what's behind addiction and we believe that maybe this and we believe this and we believe this and they have all these things that they believe may be contributing factors to that. But nobody can say this is what's going on. Even though they have all of these theories about what it is, and I talked uh, last week about the thing about the dopamine and, and how that reacts in our lives and what happens in our lives, even though brilliant minds have all of these ideas about the biology behind it, the neuroscience of addiction and why that is, all these ideas, they still do not have a solution. Still yet, the best treatment outside of the church, the best treatment is the 12-step program. And I know that some Christian 12-step programs refer to like programs like AA as a secular 12-step program, but that's not the case because it still builds off of starting with the idea of a need for a savior and then coming to the point where you make a decision to turn your your life over to this Savior. Different people have different ideas of what that Savior is. That's why I'm not in those programs. So that's the first three steps, right? And so what I want to talk about is begin to talk about the actual biblical idea behind what has happened. Why it is that things are the way they are and why we react the way we do. We have to begin to understand, and, and the Bible lays it out. It's not hidden, but maybe as we go through this, it'll be a different perspective of hearing what, what we already know, okay? I'm gonna lay out a foundation for some ideas, and we will continue to come back and revisit these ideas as they apply to different levels in our lives, in our walk with God. Starting off, right off, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image. A lot of scholars have ideas of what that means, what they were talking about. There's uh, some people have come up with some different ideas, theological ideas on, on what that means. I don't think we need to complicate it. I think I worded it that way. I think it was written and it was translated in that way so that we can begin to understand who he is and who we are. And so it starts out, and it's a kind of a funny thing. You think about God. Why would he speak to himself in plural? Right. Let us make man in our image. And he did that for a specific reason. He could have said, like when he was talking to Moses, he said, and Moses said, who should I tell Pharaoh that who sent me and God told Moses to tell him I am that's singular God could have said I will make man in my image but he wanted us to specifically know when he said that let us make man in our image and this is I, I heard uh, uh, different people talk about the concept and the idea that God is a relational God and he was in relationship with himself before he created us. 
He's the only being that could be in relationship with himself because he is a triune being. And so we know that is, that triune being is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't use the word triune being, but it's described throughout the Bible, the ideas that there are different aspects of who God is. They are distinct in themselves, and yet you can't separate them from each other. Even like we'll use the term for Jesus. We know that the the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Okay, and that Word refers to Jesus, okay? But now He wasn't born yet, but yet He existed in the beginning, and He was part of creation. Paul even talks about later on in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about, I believe it was Paul, but some people don't believe that. In the book of Hebrews, Paul talks about the spirit of Christ leading the children of Israel through the wilderness after the exodus. Now, how is it that the spirit of Christ, of Jesus, led them through? He was using that to describe the attribute as a savior and messiah, the spirit that led them as the savior and messiah. So he was describing attributes of who Jesus was. There are different cases where he appeared to Jacob and Abraham, what would be called a pre-incarnate Christ. He was there and he appeared to them, okay? Sorry, I'm laying this foundation. I'm sorry to be throwing out all these details in that. We see that it's described the different parts of who he is. They're separate, but one, okay? And he's God. He is God, the Godhead, three and one, one and three. Now, he says that we are created in his image. I believe he distinctly words it that way because we are a triune being. We are a body with a soul and a spirit. Now, let me break that down. Obviously, our body is this physical body, right? And this physical body has a hard drive computer in it called a brain. And that brain controls the operating systems of our body, controls our lungs, keeps us alive physically. Also within us, there is a soul. And that is our mind, our will, and our emotions. Some people would include our imagination in with that, which is, you know, that falls into your mind. Uh, But uh, so... It's just a different way of looking at it. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. And then we have a spirit, which is what most people in the church would say. The spirit is who we are. That's actually who we are. We are spiritual beings housed in this body. This is how we transport around in this physical realm. The spiritual being is transported in this body. Now, we get a glimpse of that in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 23. Paul is uh, talking about, he prays that God would keep us completely, body, soul, and spirit. So it's distinct. It, those words there in the Greek are uh, pneuma, which 
It's another word for breath or life, and that's the word that we translate spirit. And then psyche, which is what our soul is, that mind or will and emotions. And so it doesn't distinctly say this is what your soul is, your mind, your will, and your emotions, but it describes different parts of what that is. Because we know that our brain carries out the, the mechanical part of shooting synapses and, and the neural links and all of that kind of stuff, the electrical impulses. That's, your brain does that. But that's not really your mind. Our mind is something that you can't put your finger on. It's something intangible. Our emotions is something that's intangible. That's something that you can't, you can't describe in a, in a matter, in a physical sense. It's not an electrical impulse. It's not a chemical reaction. Those things can trigger our emotions. But the fact that we have emotions is different. Our spirit being who God created us as an eternal being. Spiritually, we are an eternal being. So we see that we're a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. We're created in the image of God. Now there's a lot more I could talk about this, but I just want to bounce forward on why this matters right now, what difference this makes. As you read on in Genesis, you come to the part of Adam and Eve and the fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We'll we'll talk about all this more in detail at another time as it applies. But I'll say this. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And there were consequences behind that. Up until that point, we walked as a triune being. And God would come and meet with, I say we, mankind, Adam and Eve, walked as a triune being. Their spirit was connected to God in a way, there was an, I'll say, an intimacy, a knowing. And the Bible would describe that as, that knowing as what we would say is for when a man uh, knows his wife, that intimacy of, you know, you know what I'm saying? All right, do I need to say it? (laughs) I hate to use the word uh, sex. Because, uh, because of what we've made the word right. and what we've turned it into. But that knowing, that intimacy, there was a connection between mankind and God that was that intimate connection on a spiritual level. God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He would come. I happen to believe that it's another example of the pre-incarnate Christ, just like the pre-incarnate Christ came to Abraham and he came to Jacob. I believe that he came and walked with Adam in bodily form and walked and talked with him. And that's why after the fall, when God comes and Adam and Eve heard God coming and they hid themselves, And so God says, where are you? God was God, right? But I believe that the pre-incarnate Christ, this is the only thing that makes sense, 
the pre-incarnate Christ is walking in the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding from him. And he knows that there's been a separation. The intimacy has been broken. And he says, where are you? And Adam says, we heard you coming. Now, if it was just a spirit just blowing through, I guess he could have blown through the trees and he heard them through the leaves or whatever, if it was just a wind or whatever. I happen to believe that, that they heard the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the garden and hid themselves. And they said, we heard you coming and we hid ourselves because we were naked and we were ashamed. They sensed the separation and the shame in that intimacy. They could not stand it. They could not stand in that intimacy with God. There was that separation. A veil was put up. And so that veil took place in the spirit realm. Biblical scholars would describe what happened in different ways. They would say that our spirit, some would say that our spirit died. Because in the Bible it says that after that the consequences of sin is death. And God told Adam and Eve if they ate from the tree that they would surely die. That term is better described as in dying you will die. And so it wasn't he was going to come kill them. They would, they would die. So this is the way I'm going to describe it. This is the best way that I can describe it from everything that I've researched and done. Mankind's spirit went into a coma. Because remember, our spirit is an eternal being. And it even says in the Bible that after the second judgment, there will be a second death. And that's that separation, eternal separation from God. And so... I believe that the, the death that they refer to, our, us being spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses, is our spirit is still here within us, but it's in a coma. It knows what's going on. It can hear what's happening in the spirit realm, but it's powerless to do anything about it. It's powerless to talk. There is a veil that has been put up between us in God in the spiritual realm. So essentially what that means is, and I'll bounce back to the trained being. If you think about it, animals, dogs, monkeys, birds, elephants, animals have a mind, a will, and an emotion. And emotions, right? They even exhibit what at times you would call love. My Rudy, my puppy Rudy loved me, and I loved him. But animals don't have a spirit. They're not a triune being. They have a body and a soul, mind, will, and emotions. And so what ended up happening as a result of the fall, we, our spirit, went into a coma. So we essentially descended into the state of an animal. We have a body and we have a soul that's active. But our spirit is no longer active. And so what does that mean for us? What ends up happening is once our soul, that intimacy between us and God is broken, we're born 
with a slumbering spirit, a spirit in a coma. And so what ends up happening is, is just like animals, we have to learn how to cope and react in this world with our mind, our will, and our emotions. And we're left to basically grow in our, what some people would call our instincts, our lower base nature. See, God didn't create us to operate that way. We're not created to operate like the animals. We were, we were born above the animals, that, you know, with that spirit and that intimacy with God. And so why, why is that a, a thing? Because we see in the garden, and we're going to revisit this, we see it in the garden. We see it played out when Jesus, after Jesus is baptized, and, he, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. We see it played out there. We see it played out in the example of the wilderness journey, in the, the tabernacle, the tent. We see all of these things played out where God created within us needs. Needs that are within us can only be filled one way, satisfactorily, or is the way God intended. And we've talked about this before. Those three needs are a need for significance, a need for security, and a need for socialization. I mean, we, we see that. We're in, the, in the garden, God put mankind in the garden, took care of all of their needs, their physical needs, security, food, provisions, everything they needed. He gave them significance by giving them a spirit and putting them above the animals. But not only that, he gave them purpose and meaning. The purpose being one, to tend the garden and take care of it. But then to subdue the rest of the world, the earth, because the garden was a location on earth. It wasn't covering the earth. And so our job was to subdue the whole earth and have dominion over it and basically spread that garden out. The garden being the representation of God's abode here on earth. God's meeting place with mankind here on earth. The, the significance that way, having meaning, having purpose. The thing of, our, of this happening in the spiritual realm, that connection with God. And so that is lost. That connection, that intimacy with God is lost because our spirit begins to slumber, is slumbering. It's in a coma. We don't have that connection. And so we are raised up in life trying to meet these needs. And that's part of what we're going to begin to talk about as we go through there and meeting those needs, how God intended it. Because a part of us is not operating properly. We're working at a disadvantage. We're driving down the road. Imagine being in a car our car is our body, the physical body, and our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions is the driver in the car. And God intended for our spirit to actually be controlling everything. But it's in the back seat in a coma. And the windshield is dirty. That represents that veil our soul is doing the best it can to try and navigate life and work through life trying to meet 
our needs for significance. Part of that significance is to be loved unconditionally where we're at. To know that we matter, we have a purpose in life. That who we are is significant in and of ourselves. If nobody else on earth existed, we would be important enough to exist to God. And so we do all kinds of things to try and fill those and meet those needs in ways that God never intended. And that goes back to what we talked about last week, that thing of you get in a relationship to satisfy that sense of socialization, the relationship. God said it's not good that man should be alone. So we get in relation in a relationship to try and do that. Like if it's with a spouse, it's to create family, to be fruitful and multiply, create family. That family grows to create community. Community grows to create a culture that we are part of and belong to something bigger than ourselves. But see, we twist it, and instead of it being for the right reason, it's for the wrong reason now, and so we're doing things in all the wrong way. And so it's not satisfying. It's not working for us. And so we end up trying to substitute other things. Part of the problem is, is the people who raise us have been through the same situation. And so they raise us in a broken, defective way. And so we begin to try to meet our own needs in ways that it was never intended. And we do the best we can. But as children, young teens, teenagers, we are making horrible choices that can be destructive. And we don't understand because we're just trying to meet our needs. And see, that's the consequences that we, don't, we look back on and we don't understand. So... Our spirit is in a coma. And no matter how hard we try to live a fulfilling, satisfied, complete life, because our spirit is in that coma, nothing we do in our soul, our mind, our will, and emotions, will allow us to live in that way. So I'm going to jump even farther forward. So we know that in Christianity, we believe that, okay, Jesus came to remove that veil. I'll put it this way for today in a simple way. Jesus' death and sacrifice and resurrection came to complete that mission of taking down that veil, of breathing life into our spirit. That's where Jesus said you must be born again. Our spirit is born again. And so it wakes up and it's alive. But herein lies the problem. Our soul has been driving the car for so long. It has a set pattern of doing things. And the way we want to do things. Built within us. And Paul talks about that thing about I find in in my members a curse. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I'm supposed to do because of the patterns and the habits. We call them coping skills or coping mechanisms, the things we've done to survive, the things we do to to not feel the pain that we feel, the things we do to bring pleasure to ourselves so that it overrides the pain, to find completeness, fulfillment, satisfaction. 
All of those things are so hardwired in our physical being and our mind, our will, and our emotions that our spirit, even though it is, has been made alive, we have to go through this process called sanctification to where our spirit learns how to override our soul. That's the putting away the old man. When they talk about the old man, they're talking about our soul leading the show. We can't kill the soul because the soul is still part of who we are. And so if you go back and you read the Bible and you read through, as you're going through, in both the Old and the New Testament, a lot of times they use the term spirit and soul interchangeably as if it's the same thing. Now that's because it's so close, it's hard to tell where one starts and one stops. It's as if they overlap. And so they use them interchangeably. When they use those and they say the word, you have to look at it in context of what they're talking about as to what it applies to. Does it apply to my soul, my mind, will, emotions? Or does it apply to the eternal me, which is my spirit? What has happened in the church today is everything be, has swung to being about being saved and going to heaven and not going to hell, which is a total distortion of the plan that God had. God's plan was not for us to seek heaven and avoid hell. Our salvation is not so that we can go to heaven because you guys... There's coming a day when this planet is going to be remade. The old planet is going to be destroyed. The new planet is going to be recreated, remodeled. And we are coming back here in glorified bodies with souls and a spirit. We are going to have a mind, a will, and an emotion just as it was in the garden beforehand. But our spirit man will have that full connection. It will be manifest that intimacy with God as it was in the garden will be fully restored at that time. And so this is the challenge that we have now. Our spirit in the spirit realm is connected to God in that way. But our soul is so powerful and because we live in this fallen world and our body has corruption, because of all of that, our software has kind of got bugs and viruses in it. Our software being our mind, our will, and our emotions. It has viruses and bugs. Believe me, I know I've been walking around carrying bugs and viruses for the last month. Feels like two months. This process that we're going to walk through is that process of sanctification. It's the same process that Jesus did. Jesus went through the process when he went into the wilderness for 40 days after he was baptized. He didn't need to be sanctified, but he did it to fulfill the scriptures. And so he showed through his temptations, you know, when the devil came and tempted him, he showed through that his sanctification. And we see in that the revelation of 
this sin nature, lust of the eyes, which deals with our soul, our imagination, our thoughts, and our mind. Lust of the flesh, which deals with our physical body, the cravings, the desires, and all of that. And the pride of life, which deals with that unquenchable fire of the need for significance, that need to matter, that need to be important. When that term, the pride of life, that can sound really bad. Well, I'm not a prideful person. There's so much more to it. We see Jesus handles that with the devil. Because the devil wants to come in and help us meet our needs the way he intends for them. He wants them to be done so that we can stay corrupted. He's constantly working on our souls, our mind, our will, and our emotions. Constantly. Because he knows if he can keep the soul in charge, then our spirit will never rise up. Fullness that God has for us. And he'll end up with our spirit in the end. If our spirit never wakes up, he'll end up with it. But once we're born again and our spirit is woken up, the devil can't do anything to your spirit. He will speak to your soul through your spirit, through the spirit realm. And he will mess with your mind, your will, and your emotions. Thanks for listening. Please comment and subscribe for upcoming podcasts. To order your copy of My Real Life, go to the Take Action page at our website, reallifeministries-stl.com or go to Real Life Ministries STL on Facebook.